Well, hello, church. Here we are, day 6,422 of the current crisis. I've lost count. But it's so good to, to have you here and to hear you singing. I, I think this room misses you when you're not here. We're in Job. How fitting. Uh, and today, Job chapters 15 through 17. And I hope that there are people when they read Job, they get down. And I get that, and I would, never, I would never suggest that you continue to read at that stage, that you need to pull back some. But it actually gives me words to use and also reminds me of words I should never use whenever I read these arguments back and forth. It's a series of set pieces. Today we need to talk about doubt. In many religions, there's no room for doubt. If you, if you ever express it, you're in trouble. We, we tend not to think about ourselves this way. I, I can remember a, an interview once on the television about, uh, with, rather, with Billy Graham. And Dr. Graham was asked if he ever had a doubt. And he said, not since the day I became a Christian. And I remember looking at that going, oh. Now, I have no reason to doubt him. Don't get me wrong. I was just thinking, all right, um, his experience is a bit different than mine. But my father was another one who said he never had a single doubt from the very moment he decided to give himself to Jesus. I'm just amazed at that, frankly. There are places, however, where if you have a doubt, don't tell them. In many Islamic countries, doubt is considered the same as blasphemy in law. It's written in the legal code. And in many Christian tribes, it may as well be written in there. They say religion is settled. It's firmed up. It's been decided. Just receive it as given and take it as is. To question any aspect of it at all is to invite the wrath of God, conveniently delivered at the hands of those already in power, but you're inviting the wrath of God to fall down upon you. There were brotherhood papers back in the day, even in our own religious tribe. And there are still some that will let you know, contending for the faith, spiritual sword. There was one known as the Heretic Detector. I love that name. I'm not sure how it worked. I imagine you just laid it on a table and like a Ouija board, it would turn to the heretic among you. But I could have that all entirely wrong. I received some of the hate, uh, the, the worst hate mail I ever received once from a church called the Lover's Lane Church. And I'm going, really? I'd move. I, I, I think you need to find another, you know, an, an, you know, hard shell, nut, whatever, find another place to do this sort of thing. And again, people will say, well, why would you name it? The thing is this, all you have to do is express doubt and you can get unleashed upon by people who agree with you on 99% of everything else. When I was a little boy, my parents took us to the wilds of America, an unknown place. I think the name was Arkansas. I'm not sure how many shots we required before traveling to this area and what visas were necessary. But I was just a little guy, and this was a, a lectureship, and there were going to be a whole bunch of Christians gathering, listening to sermons, and who what little boy? I mean, come on. Anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'll never forget the angry man. He was red-faced and yelling at us the whole time from the pulpit, screaming and up. And I kept wondering, what's keeping him up there? If he gets loose, 
you know, what's going to happen? It's America. Somebody can shoot him. But, you know, how, how can he? And I remember he picked up a songbook. And it was the songs of the church. There was a new songbook. And he did not approve. It had a couple songs in there. He did not approve of the wording. And he yelled, what church? And threw it. And now this church, would, this group didn't applaud. Because that would have been another problem. But you heard a lot of... Rah, 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 rah. And probably one when the book hit. I'm not really sure how that worked. But I, I, even growing up, I was thinking, that room agreed with him on 99.9% .9 of everything. And he's furious over this. That's the way we react when someone who agrees with us then says a word of doubt about anything. And if you think, oh, no, we don't. Yeah, we do. But sometimes we're able to stop it from coming back. That's what's going on here. Job is a, is a set play with set exchanges in it. In this two-chapter scene, uh, 15 and 16, Eliphaz maintains there is no room for doubt. Doubt is a sign of iniquity. Doubt is a sign of evil and a sin-filled heart. Job then responds. But let's look at Eliphaz's opening. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with the hot east wind? We'll get to that phrase in a bit. Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you, undermine, even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side. Men even older than your father. I, I, later, Eliphaz would invent Twitter. <clears throat> this is, there, there's not any grace to be found in this at all. There's a lot there. He literally says that Job is full of hot air. The east wind, the east wind to the people of Mesopotamia never brought good news. The east wind brought dust and heat. There was no body of water out there for it to, to pick up moisture. And the mountain ranges way out there made sure that when, before the wind even got started, it was stripped of moisture. So hot air, if you've ever wondered where the phrase full of hot air comes from, it literally comes from the east wind that would hit that region. And the phrasing that they used, which worked its way into our phrasing, no benefit, he's saying. Anything you're saying is no benefit. It's just hot air. And he dismisses, this is the thing, he dismisses Job's arguments and pain without answering any of Job's questions or acknowledging his pain. You're just a bad person for having questions. Wow. I've had, I don't know how many people come to me and say, I, you know, after you fumble around a bit, they'll ask, well, I, I don't know if I believe, and they'll say something. And they look at me like I'm going to leap across the desk at them. And I'll say, all right, 
well, what do you want to do? Well, do you want to talk about it? You just want to talk about what it feels like to have the doubt. Either way, I'm in the room with you. And they, I've had people come back and say, I didn't know you were allowed to ask these questions. Of course you are. Of course you are. This is a dance, but it's also a wrestling match. It is a way for us to figure out who we are and who God is. It's all right to have the questions. In fact, it's all right sometimes to make sure you understand what's going on. I remember once I was invited to this, this gathering of church leaders in an area. And I was quite pleased to be invited because I had just come to America. I didn't, you know, how do they know I'm here? You know, that sort of thing. And it was, but it was, it was really, I think they went through the phone book. Phone book, by the way, is a, um, a thing we used to carry about made of dead trees. Uh, it's primitive times. The dinosaurs ate them, so we don't have them now. The, um, but they went through the phone book and just got all of us there. And then they sat us at tables. And I sat at a table with people of other Christian tribes. Uh, and, you know, I'm, so I'm just kind of there. And, and they're ta- each one of them seems to be a bit of a scholar. It was just to release a new version of the Bible. It was a new King James Version. So um, that's all it was. It was a sales job, basically. Uh, but as we're talking, one of the men across the way, he goes, now what church do you, uh, you lead? And I told him, and he said, oh, you're the ones that believe a person, a saved person can be lost. And I went, well, we don't say it's easy. But then in my head, I was thinking, yeah, we do. (laughs) And I was going, well, and we started talking back and forth and found out he thought, I believe, that somebody could be saved and following Jesus, but break a law unknowingly and be surprised by hell. I thought he meant somebody could be saved trying to follow Jesus, have a couple of bad years killing people and die, and um, he'd still go to heaven. He didn't believe that. I didn't believe this. Our language had split us. We used words and concepts in different ways. The more we talked, the more we found we had common ground. But how many places, as soon as you say anything, you are hit? It is a piling on. We see it in our culture right now. Whereas you, if you use a word in a way that other people don't use that word today, because it changes all the time, they come at you. The cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, is really what you're seeing with Eliphaz here. They want to pick it apart. They want to answer. And these, these are supposed to be friends. These are supposed to be friends who know each other well, who should give each other the benefit of the doubt. But where there should be compassion, there's only a rush to defend God by quashing anyone who might speak their doubts out loud. Eliphaz uses sarcasm here, but that's not unusual. This book is full of sarcasm. Every player in this book uses sarcasm, including God. And if that offends you, you haven't read Job, have you? Because he does, it's not subtle. (laughs) It is not subtle when God starts using it. We'll get there. And then Aliphaz does something which makes me just go, huh. I wonder if he ever realized what he had done. Because Aliphaz looks at Job sarcastically and goes, oh, have you been listening in to some council room of God? Well, everybody in the audience has been. Chapter 1 starts in the council room of God. And Eliphaz doesn't even know that exists. He's being sarcastic. Later, by the way, God will come at that concept in, uh, in 
Well, let's see, before I do that, that Job 15 and verse 8, let's put it up. Do you listen in on God's counsel? Now, that's not like counseling, that's like a room of advisors. Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? And when God opens his mouth in this book in Job 38, look how he starts it. Now, I've asked this out of the New King James Version, because the NIV, for some reason, takes away the word counsel, and I'm not sure why. I love the NIV, don't get me wrong, but no version has, has perfect word choices in every place. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, this big storm, and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Hey, Eliphaz, there is a counsel. Hey, Eliphaz, yeah, we did talk about this. Eliphaz, this was all planned. This which you said could never happen. This which you said God would never do. This which you broke Job over was my idea. Would you not hate to hear that from the lips of God? We have to be very careful when we speak for God when he did not give us permission to speak for God. By the way, uh, Jeremiah and Amos also speak of this counsel of God. God is known as the Lord of hosts. He is known for having a very large group up there. Now, I've had people say, but how could they counsel him since he knows everything? You know something? I don't have an answer. And I'm not going to speak there where God did not. What I'm going to tell you is he's got a room and he uses the room. Eliphaz something which is too close, to com to, uh, too close for comfort to the way we often comfort people. Are God's consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you. How many times I've had people say, well, yes, you've, you've lost your job, your wife's left you, whatever, but at least we know we've still got God. You know something? That's true. And that can be a comfort, but that may not be your, that should not necessarily be where you start. Somebody, Job needed desperately for somebody to get down where he was looking in the eyes and go, ouch, this is awful. You must be in such incredible pain. I, I cannot imagine what's going through your head. They don't do that. That's what he's looking for. Instead of just patting him on the head saying, listen, you got God and that's all that matters at the risk of offending some in the room. No, that's not all that matters sometimes. Sometimes we need God with skin on to love us. Sometimes we need a good day. Sometimes we need a drink of cool water. Well, Aliphaz argues for two things. Age and consensus. Let's look at that. Smarter people than you have already figured this out. Have you ever heard that sort of thing given to you? Or even thought it? Well, you know, we have consensus on this. We all agree so who are you to disagree? Well, look at Job 15, 19, and you get an idea how they get consensus. To whom alone the land was given when no foreigners moved among them. They drove off everybody that thought in a different way. They got them out of there. And then they could say, well, we all have this wisdom. Who are you? I, I, uh, as a scientist, I understand scientific consensus, and I like it. What I don't like is when I hear that phrase used in the media. Because media isn't science, they don't know science, and they don't understand the, the dangers of scientific consensus. Because scientific consensus, all the way up through the Supreme Court in the United States, agreed 
that if you were a substandard human, you could be forcibly sterilized against your will because we, need to, we needed to clear and make the world safe for pure white people. That was, look it up, Cold Harbor. Look it up, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the eugenics movements in this nation that gave Hitler the idea for the extermination of the Jews. He wrote fan letters to the Supreme Court and the President of the United States. Those are there, but we like to forget this. You could go to state fairs like in St. Louis in the 1930s and there would be tents where you could go in and people would chart your genealogy for you to give you a certificate of pure blood. In this country, scientific consensus to the point where Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, when deciding against a woman who did not want to be sterilized because she was poor and she wasn't terribly smart and her family were poor and not terribly smart, he said it, four generations of imbeciles is enough. That was America. We need to understand sometimes scientific consensus gets it wrong. Sometimes we need to understand we need some humility when we talk about science, but we also need a lot of humility when we talk about God. Because he's going to be bigger than our brains, and we're going to need to acknowledge he is bigger than our brains. It's absolutely fair to ask people when they, because I do, people will look at me and say, I'm not sure, sure about the Bible because of this. And I do ask them, have you... Are you, if you think you're the first person to have ever said this, fair enough. But if you, if you think somebody else might have, have you tried to research it? And I don't do that to shut them up. I do that to know where to start with them. If they've said, yes, I've read these three articles and this four books, and I'll listen to that guy on YouTube, great. If they say, no, you know, I've never really given it much thought, we start in another place. But Aliphaz was trying to shut all conversation by saying, you're the first one born, you're older than anybody, the old people and the consensus were the ones who know, and it's all we've all agreed because it's unanimous because we drove out everybody that didn't agree with us. Oh my goodness. Eliphaz then goes on by saying, By the way, Job, you're doomed, 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 and there's nothing you can do unless you turn around and then God will save you and all things will be wonderful. But you have to first repent of the sins you can't even figure out what you did. What a horrible situation. So Job answers. Job answers, I have heard many things like these. <laughs> You're miserable comforters, all of you, by the way. Just don't be one of those. You know, I, I remember I had surgery once. I, it's a long story. I don't have time for it here. Uh, tumor, found out no cancer, not coming back, but they had to open up and pull my face up and do all this, get into it, right? So by the time they were done, I had a cartoon head, you know, a big round thing, all all kind of bandages. I'm, I'm laying in the bed just thinking, you know, oh, don't touch. And here come in one of our ladies from the church that no matter what you said, she knew how to comfort people. And she uh, sat down on the bed. Don't, don't do that. Plus I'm Scottish, you know. And then she reached over and I'm going, I mean, everything hurt. The air hurt. And she, she actually said, um, you know, I, I understand you're in a lot of pain. I had an aunt that had what you had, rest her soul. <laughs> That's a miserable comforter. 
I was ready to die and see Jesus. Anything get out of that room at that point? Well, your long-winded speeches never end. What ails you that you keep on arguing? What's wrong with you that you keep saying the same things? I, I would also speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you, shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. I don't know if that's true or not, but I know Job hopes he would be a comforter. And I bet he would be now after experiencing what he did. Is it not true that we have to go through pain first to comfort somebody else? I mean, I can remember, this is a tiny thing. Growing up, and people would not come to church because they had back problems, or they couldn't sit because they had back problems. Here's a problem about back problems. You can't see it. It's not like I don't have a leg. You know, you can see that. Um, no, and so I was a back problems, you know, well, you know, move around a little bit or something. And then in my 20s, I got pneumonia and I coughed. And a muscle tore. Just a muscle, not a slip disc. Not a, I, world's biggest baby award, every single day. There wasn't a thing I could do. I couldn't stand up, sit down, lean over. Nothing you did didn't hurt. Now when somebody says they have back problems, I go, I'm sorry. But I, I needed the humility of pain first. I needed to go through some things before I could comfort someone else. It's really important. Somebody tells you one of their sins, their pains, their struggles, their weaknesses, whatever it is. You have two choices. You know, we could make more, but just two. One, you can rub their noses in their pain and tut-tut at them. Or, two, you can comfort and help them. Look at the life of Jesus, you know exactly what the answer is. The world gets offended at everything said and done. Don't be like them. Be a person which it is very hard to offend. I can remember once, they, um, this isn't on the notes. Pray for me that I'll get back to, well, you, you, you better pray, I guess. Um, I, I got a call. A guy goes, you're, you're due to come up and do a seminar for us? And I went, yeah. And he goes, um, a couple of us like to have lunch with you. you can, now, nobody, I never do, I don't like that because nobody's ever said, let's do lunch. And you get there and they say, here's a car. It's never good. It's just never good. So we got there and uh, before the food even arrived, the man pulled out a letter, and, uh, and he, an envelope, and he said, we've received a letter making some charges against you. I said, really? Who's it from? He says, well, it was anonymous. <laughs> uh, at least they got nerve, you know, you got to give them that. So he, pull, he started to pull it out, and I put my hand on his hand, and that's, that freaked him out a bit, because men don't put hands on their hands in America. Or, or in Britain, because we're, you know, manly men as well. Um, but I put my hand there for, purpose, for the shock value, and he looked up at me, and so did the guy with him. And I said, I don't know what's in the letter, but I will tell you this, whatever's in there is nowhere near as bad as the truth. And he froze. We ended up having lunch, I went and did the seminar. I still don't know what was in the letter. I don't care. I had to learn about the bad in me before 
I could learn not to be offended at every word, at every at everything thrown at you. No, you know, I'm just, you can call me that, but if you only knew me, you'd call me worse. So I'm good. Job's, Job says, you know, you don't have to walk around being offended. You could just be quiet. They haven't taken that option. Job, this is the irony in the book. Job has a healthier relationship with God than all the ones in the book who claim they are talking for God. Take a look at this, Job 16, 7 through 8. Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You've shriveled me up. And it's become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. In other words, you did it, and I'm catching the blame. Let's just pop to the next verse in, in verse 11. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. Now, who's he talking about? The people who claim to be righteous speaking for God. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And there'll be another guy, Elihu, who's going to do a drive-by in a few chapters. He's saying, these are the ungodly and the wicked. You've thrown me into these. What am I supposed to do here? But remember Job 13, 7, the warning, do not speak deceitfully for God. Do not speak for God what God did not say, what God did not order. Do not fill in the gaps for God. Go silent if God is silent. It's only fair that they did to, to say. They did try to comfort him when they sat with him, but they quit trying when Job started complaining and expressing doubt. That's just something we need to remember. Don't be like them. Comfort, and when somebody complains and expresses doubt, enter their story. We talked about that last week, right? Enter their story, acknowledge their pain, and walk with them. Much of chapter 16 reminds me of David in Psalm 51. If you've never read David's Psalm 51 in this context, you really need to. Because David talks about, God, would you heal the bones that you have broken? You have lashed me. You have, have done these things to me. But David did it in the context of the prophet Nathan letting David know he was guilty of adultery, murder, and treason. And that he had committed some of the worst possible sins against some of the nicest people that could have ever lived. That he was the bad guy. So David writes Psalm 51 in repentance and pain saying, yeah, this is what you did to me, but it's because of what I did. Job in chapter 16, it, there are a lot of parallels with Psalm 51, but the, what's missing is Job's going, I don't know what I did. He received no Nathan. He got Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so look at this. Really interesting callback to a story. Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. This is a callback and a foreshadowing. And I just love it. This, this, this little phrasing here just knocks me off my seat every time I read it. My blood cries out to God. What's the callback? The blood of Abel has called out to me, Cain. Don't tell me, am I my brother's keeper? 
I know where your brother's blood is because it's shouting to us in heaven. That's the callback. By the way, exceptionally rare in the New Test in the Old Testament, rather, for Adam and Eve in the creation story to be mentioned. And it's mentioned here. Then, what does he say? I need an intercessor, someone to stand between me and God and to speak for me and to acknowledge my tears and to tell God this is hard. Who do we know that did that? Obviously, we call ourselves the Church of Christ. Now, that's not a brand name. That is saying we belong to the one who became our intercessor. He who paid it all, as our song sang. The one who came and stretched between us and God and made the connection. Go look at those verses again sometime. Job 16, 18 through 21. And just acknowledge what God was doing in the oldest story we have. Probably first gathered five, six hundred years. That's a guess, but it's what I've been told by several uh, scholars. Five, six hundred years before Moses started writing. God wanted this story brought to us. It's an amazing story. Then in chapter 17, Job speaks to God, and then he speaks to his friends, and then he speaks to God about his friends. He asks, why do people insist that all tragedy has a reason? Well, there's a reason for that. There is. Because we're terrified of randomness in the universe. We are. There's a virus out there. An RNA virus, which means it's a very simple virus that is prone to mutating and changing its behavior. Uh, it is closely related to rhinoviruses and the like in that sense. It, uh, you know, for example, you never get the same cold twice, but there are so many rhinoviruses. It, this virus is out there, and who knows? We don't, you know, there, you go and there's the shopping cart, and you go, well, do I touch it? Or do I walk around carrying things? You, uh, you, you go to Kroger, and you, because you're a good person, you deserve a donut. And you go over, and the person in front of you pulls her mask down, roots around for a little bit, and you go, I don't deserve a donut. These have now become little rings of death. <laughs> to be fair, they were before. But I was not forced to com contemplate that until the mask thing. And we, we know randomness, and we don't like randomness. We want cause and effect, understandable cause and effect. And so when we see someone scarred, it's hard for us to have a discussion. When somebody has a child die, we, we're, we're trying to find all of the, re was there a genetic thing? Was there a dietary thing? Was there an accident? We always look or we look away. Bible teaches us, no, no, don't look away, engage, even if you're getting it wrong, don't stop. Chapter 17, verse 10, Job's come, you know, come at me, bro, you know, come on, all of you, try again, I'm not going to find a wise man about you, Edith. it's just like, all right, you've been doing great, let's just keep going, but then he says this, the cry of every atheist I've ever, I've ever worked with, there's, they have an inner cry. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you're my father, to the worm, my mother, my sister, where then is my hope? 
who can see any hope for me? And Carl Sagan was last interview before he died. The interviewer asked him if he regretted not believing in God at this point. And he said, no. He says, the universe does not know I exist. It never knew I was here. And it won't miss me when I'm gone. Ow. Even Christopher Hitchens, who um, was pretty nasty atheist when he wanted to be, um, he said, I, when he was dying of cancer, he said, part of me hopes there is a God and that he's a nicer God than I thought there might be. You know, at least he gave that little open door. If all we have is this, the violence, the hatred, the vision in a world, and you have no hope, what do you do with that? We as Christians believe it all tracks back to the father of lies, the great annihilator, the great dragon. Would you bring your people back up, please? When we see the violence, the hatred, and the division in this world, we need to remember where it comes from. It does have a wellspring. It does have a source. And we don't have to drink from that fountain. We have a choice. When people are stripped of their faith in God, they have to make something else their religion. And it might drive them to the streets and make them willing to kill you for their new religion. Whether it's a social movement, a political stand, a war over religion, or whatever. They'll fight for it, and they'll kill for it, just as people have killed for religion, and just as Job's friends are killing him emotionally. Would you stand, please? When we see the world going crazy, our job is to not join the crazy crowd. Don't amp up your arguments. Don't amp up your fights. That's a mistake of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. No. Our first response must be to show those around us that the comforter, friend, and advocate for which their soul cries exist. But you cannot tell them. What do we have? We have a medical emergency. We need our team to come. We're good? Okay, the team, is, the team is on site. Let's get the safety team here, and we'll go to work. Let's all, we're not going to crowd him. Do not crowd we're going to pray for David, and then we're just, you want to sing us out or just be dismissed? We're just, all right, we're just going to say a prayer, and let's give him air, all right? You can place your hands in the air toward him if you wish. We'll end this way. Our Father in heaven, we love David. He is an important part of our lives in this church. Whatever is going on in his system, we pray that you would heal him, that you would surround him with those who love him and who know what to do, when to do it, and Father, we pray he be restored to health and joy very, very soon. We are your people, Father. Help us to tell of Jesus, but help us to spend far more of our time showing him to people who need hope. In the name of Jesus, the whole church says,